Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So you had... uh competing turns uh, before the assembled press between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley yesterday uh, with uh, just a few days ago before Saturday's South Carolina primary. And uh, just in case you thought what that she was having this presser to drop out. No, no, she's in it for the long run, folks. But instead of focusing on how to make America stronger tomorrow... Some people want to know if I'm going to cave today. We've all heard the calls for me to drop out. We all know where they're coming from. The political elite, the party bosses, the cheerleaders in the commentator world. The argument is familiar. They say I haven't won a state, that my path to victory is slim. They point to the primary polls and say I'm only delaying the inevitable. Why keep fighting when the battle was apparently over after Iowa? Look, I get it. In politics, the herd mentality is enormously strong. A lot of Republican politicians have surrendered to it. The pressure on them was way too much. They didn't want to be left out of the club. Of course, many of the same politicians who now publicly embrace Trump privately dread him. They know what a disaster he's been and will continue to be for our party. They're just too afraid to say it out loud. Well, I'm not afraid to say the hard truths out loud. I feel no need to kiss the ring. Anymore. I have no fear of Trump's retribution. I'm not. I'm not looking for anything from him. My own political future is of zero concern. So I hear what the political class says, but I hear from the American people, too. And then she went on to give you the. Uh pro forma vignettes of her interactions with young and old and the full rainbow spectrum of humanity that on the trail is telling her, please, Nikki, you have to stay in to save the country. Please be an example to my little baby boy and so on and so forth (laughs) that you hear from politicians at the podium like Nikki Haley. Yeah, right. Uh, the, the, uh, The herd mentality, the public praise and the private uh, disdain 
uh, unlike Hillary, unlike Nikki Haley, who publicly praised Trump, is now publicly disdaining him. But something that she said, I, I wanted to just plumb the depths of a bit, a okay. bit of a thought experiment, and I sort of prompted to do this by uh, um, my most recent podcast interview for my counterculture podcast over at American Greatness. Who did you uh, have with, on? Uh, John Cochran. He's the grumpy economist. Uh, he is uh, over at the Hoover Institution, MIT, University of Berkeley, Cal Berkeley, PhD in economics. Pretty bright guy. Yeah. Not one prone to hyperbole, prone to the passions of the day. And we were just talking about, you know, the the sort of the policy uh, agenda of a second Trump presidency. And he just sort of stopped me, appropriately so, and said, you know, I get this question a lot of just what's the policy agenda going to be of uh, the a uh, re-upping of the Trump tax cuts? What should he do on depreciation schedules and corp marginal rates and so on and so forth? I said, forget all that. It is going to be utter chaos. It is going to be a constitutional crisis. Not uh, and he's not putting this on uh, on Trump's shoulders. Certainly not exclusively. Saying you. There will be rioting in the streets that will dwarf what we witnessed in the summer of 2020. There will be litigation on every single thing. There will be another cooked up impeachment proceeding, depending on who's in power. But even if the Democrats weren't in power, they'll still move. Uh, uh, you know, they'll still be circulating articles of impeachment that they can't. Uh, go anywhere with but consummate but 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 they'll still I mean you the, like I, I do we have a full appreciation of the looming constitutional crisis that is before us uh, regardless of outcome but probably more likely if Trump wins than if he doesn't just because of the nature of the respective uh sides of America that support the competing candidates. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. We also have our text line fired up and ready to go. 64636, type in DA and then your comment. I mean, I just, people, it's it, it really is interesting to consider, and, I, and that doesn't say, so, oh, well, I, we can't, it's, and, and it was sort of, remind, I was reminded of it because of Nikki Haley's, Trump's a disaster. Yeah. Well, she kept saying, you know, they're two old men. Okay, Dan, well, I mean, we, we yeah, know I mean, this, Nikki. Thank you so much. And, and, so, and, and by the way, all these, oh, they're, they're demanding she get out of the race. You can stay in the race as long as you want. I don't care. I mean, to, right now, you know, my guess is that if you stayed in the race past March 12th, it would be over anyway because Trump is going to secure the necessary delegates to be the nominee. Right. So, so go ahead. I mean, But she still out. only has $13 million of cash left. Listen, drop out, drop out on Saturday. Drop out on, drop out on March twelfth. Don't never drop out. Um, you know, be, when the money runs out, be a one man band traveling the country. I don't care. Yeah. Nobody she cares. She said she's going to stay in until the last vote is counted. Yeah, in South Carolina. Yeah, yeah with the one the big pronouncements of politicians, and then the rubber meets the road. Um, but but to the chaos, to Trump and the chaos uh, conceptions. Um, you know, he was asked about this at you know his time before the public last night. This is the Fox News town hall that yeah. Laura Ingram hosted, and um, the um, the revenge question: Are you going to be so? Essentially, it's this argument that's being made, including by 
opponents of Trump. It's so consumed, in addition to all the chaos around him, he's going to be so consumed with vengeance, he will uh, not be focused on the policy agenda. He will be beset by his own personal vendettas and so forth. Um, I thought this was uh, a pretty good moment for the former president. But the question about score settling, a lot, a lot of women, you know, they don't, a lot of women voters, they don't like the name calling, they don't like the score settling, they just, they love your policies, and they just want Trump's policies, maybe not so much of the other stuff. So I think that's what the, the question, well, no, if but, you don't mind my asking, I think that's what she's getting Well, at. But, I, but also you want to say, how do you get together? We're going to get together through success. When this country, the country was at a level that we've never, we had the best employment numbers in history. Everything was good. And this country was coming together. Then we got hit with COVID. But this country came together. Uh, I don't care about the revenge thing. I know they usually usually use the word revenge. Will there be revenge? Uh, My revenge will be success. There's a there's a bumper sticker. Uh, Yeah, there's a bumper sticker. By the way, just on the whole, like, I don't fear Trump's retribution. What is Trump's retribution? Calling you a name? All, all this, all this scary talk. I know because because uh, you know the, the never Trump simpletons and the left compare him to you know despots of the twentieth century. Uh, what can, can you give me an example of his revenge? What, what did he fire somebody in The Apprentice? He called somebody names. What's what's the revenge? What's the, what's putting, the, maybe putting up a candidate against somebody who doesn't uh, see eye to eye with him. Primarying oh, so, somebody, oh, so, but that happens so, all the time. Supporting a primary candidate. I mean, the, the whole, the, the vengeance and uh, you know, the, the hellfires will rain down. Well, give me an example. I mean, he's this character from Lord of the Rings, right? He's the evil wizard casting spells and... Uh, whatever, turning men into mice, and so well, give me an example. Name calling. I mean, wow, you can take name calling. You're not afraid to be called a name on your path to the presidency. Wow, so inspired. I'm so impressed. George in Naperville, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, Dan, the revenge is going to be the end of democracy. These people have been fired up with that all along, and they're going to hit the streets. George, uh, Phil Maryville. Uh, hey, morning, guys. I, I was thinking the same thing uh, there, Dan. This is probably going to be one of the worst years in decades uh, with this election coming up. But I, we, we literally have to, we have to get another Republican in there because these Democrats, these new Democrats with their new socialist agenda, globalist agenda, we, we can't have another four years of this. It's not like it would be like uh, a Joe Manchin in there, which I wouldn't vote for a Democrat either way. But these Democrats these days are completely brainwashed in every single policy they put out. I mean, well, we can't afford it. I'll take take the riots. Yeah, thanks for the call, Phil. <laughs> I, I I mean, look, it's it's a funny thing to say, but he's right. I mean, the 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 neo Jacobins, the new Marxists, the this is a religious cult. They're puritanical and tyrannical. They don't and have so, God. They have politics and politicians. Right. And so the, so the threat of, of the rioting and a constitutional crisis, well, well you can't let them extort their, you out of your republic. I mean, so whatever may come, the fight is one we have to have. 
Listen to podcasts of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Signature Bank. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Weekday afternoons at 3 on AM 560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So yesterday... New charges announced in connection with the mass shooting event that occurred at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade and celebration where 23 people were shot. And apparently uh, two of those who were shot were assailants because two assailants were charged with murder yesterday by the Jackson County, Missouri prosecutor's office. And here's Gene Peters Baker. The prosecutor to explain the charges. Now, I would like to try and give you a brief uh, summary of, I think, what occurred that day that led to these criminal charges. From the evidence, it appears that Defendant Mays, that's the first person I, I read off charges on, Defendant Mays was in a verbal argument with another individual. And the evidence um, does not reflect in these early moments that there was any prior history between these individuals, Mays and the individual he was in some kind of verbal dispute with. There was no connection uh, to each other, those two individuals. Now, that argument very quickly escalated to Mays drawing his firearm, a handgun. Mays fired, or Mays pulled his handgun first. Almost immediately, almost immediately, others pulled their firearms. Defendant Miller uh, was one of those individuals. While both adults um, are charged with murder, the evidence tells us that it was Mr. Miller's firearm. Mr. Miller's firearm struck Lisa Lopez Galvin. So that's just two individuals. Um, And I think as we all stand here, this investigation is still very, very active and ongoing. And we're gonna probably quickly leave this room and go right back uh, to that so that um, everybody understands what's next. But I do want you to understand, we seek to hold every shooter accountable for their actions on that day, every single one. So while we're not there yet on every single individual, we're going to get there. Oh, boy. 
And the, so the, the two individuals that were named are named because they're both adults uh, yeah. as far as the law is concerned. Lindell so, Mays and Dominic Miller. So Miller and Mays were both shot, and they both shot. And Miller's bullet, the gun from the uh, bullet from Miller's gun, is the one that killed that uh, that DJ. And um, I thought Mays was. Uh, I'm, all right, I'm so confused. No, Miller's. Miller's. All right. And uh, it's and and there there were casings recovered from three different caliber guns. So I don't know if uh, one of the other guns that was used by an assailant is one of the juveniles that's also been charged who we don't know anything about. We don't have the probable cause documents, the charging documents like we do for Miller and Mays. Um, but so now you have two adults charged and still, as I understand it, two juveniles charged, all charged with various counts of murder. But you don't exactly know what the role the juveniles had was because now we know at least who murdered, according to the forensic evidence, who murdered that uh, that that uh, woman that was shot. Yeah, Lisa Lopez Galvin, the DJ. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turnkey Dot Pro answer line six four six three six D A Turnkey Dot Pro text. And I sort of felt like the whole story of two juveniles and it just uh, being a some sort of um, uh, altercation you know. or argument. They said. No, uh, some sort of uh, showdown, some sort of uh, high noon at the OK Corral kind of thing just between the two of them didn't make sense. And that wasn't it. As you heard the prosecutor talking about, it's one group starts eyeing and uh, I guess jawboning with another group that don't really know each other. Somebody, I mean, this is from the probable cause documents I'm summarizing. Uh, somebody sees uh, uh, one of them with the backpack and a gun sticking out. So then uh, one person from one of the groups pulls a gun. Then another person from another group pulls a gun. Then Mays apparently is the first one to open fire. And that's when multiple people who were in possession of guns opened fire back and forth. It's just, but what's the point, you know, between point A and point B, the two adults and the two juveniles? Did the two juveniles see these two fighting, and then they got out their guns, too, and started shooting? Well, that's sort of what I think you can infer, reasonably infer, although we don't know that to be certain, right. because they we don't have yeah. the particulars on the juveniles and they didn't have uh, the booking photo so the the kid that we thought was a juvenile that got tackled by the good samaritan that's an adult that's 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 miller that was miller the guy who got tackled okay. this is in the uh, charging documents um where it talks about him getting shot him running and then he's tackled and the gun comes out as that uh as that heroic dude um who tackled him described and then they're on top of him holding him down pending the cops arriving and taking him into custody, which has happened. So it's starting to come together a little bit. But the whole like, eh, you know, it's like two uh, silly kids and they 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 get in a fight and they just start shooting each other. And one is whirling around because uh, he doesn't know how to use the gun. Right. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And you heard from the Jackson County prosecutor there saying, so now you got four in custody. And she says, we're not done. We're at the beginning of this. 
So it's a little bit more complicated than we were first led to believe, and we're supposed to stop paying attention and and make sure we use the proper appellations when we describe these animals who open fire in this crowd of tens of thousands of people per the mayor of Kansas City. No, it's it's it, we're, we're starting to get a little bit clearer picture, but it's still not crystal. And, and how stupid is this? According to these documents, it says uh, the witness's boyfriend told investigators a group of people approached Mays and a woman, quote, as they began arguing about why they were staring at each other. Now yeah, you're getting eye- fights because you're staring at it? You looking at me? You looking at me? Yeah, this it's the so eye- stupid. It's the eye-mugging thing. Oh, yeah, my right. God. Please. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, there's something from the uh, May's probable cause statement, too. Okay, what? I wanted to get to. Just something that he made. Because um, these uh, geniuses both waived their Miranda rights and started talking to police. I'm sure their defense attorneys are going to be real happy about that. Um, but uh, let's go to Mike in, in Littleton, Colorado. Uh, you're yeah. Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. It, it just just listening to the story, it's like a, it's like a scene out of Blazing Saddles. Uh, all of these yeah. sweet, innocent young kids automatically all pulled guns that they brought to a, uh, a Super Bowl parade. Uh, you know, that sounds like non-thuggery to me. Yeah, right. Um, and yeah. a real quick comment on that, Mayor of Kansas City, he'd be elected again tomorrow. The problem isn't him. The problem is everyone who votes for people like him. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Mike. Yeah, so Mays, but it, it, it's like, I mean, if it wasn't so serious and there wasn't death and injuries, it, it would be. I, w- I would say Blazing Saddles is almost like a scene from I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. Oh. It's like the Wayans brothers should be doing this, but it's obviously it's not funny. Um, But I mean, this is like it's just so it's so cosmically stupid. Listen to this from this from Mays, the guy, the the guy who fired the first shot that sparked the return fire and all these people, innocent people going down. This is from the probable cause document. He initially stated he didn't think he shot his gun. When he was advised he did shoot, he replied that he didn't hit anything, though. But he still knew it was bad. Then he said he only shot one time. Then he said maybe two times. When asked why, he, uh, he said because the other group advanced on them to begin with. And then he said, I'm quoting him. He's quoted in the probable cause document. Stupid man just pulled out a gun. Or just stupid man just pulled a gun out and started shooting. I shouldn't have done that. Just being stupid. When reminded that the person Mays was shooting at was running away from him, Mays replied, I know. And they didn't even release booking photos of these two thugs. Or should I not use that word, Dan? There's something. There is something psychologically wrong with that guy beyond the obvious. Beyond the obvious of opening fire in a crowd um, when because somebody was eye mugging you or you thought they were advancing on you, but you had no reasonable uh, reasonable belief that you were in any harm. You know, it's just all like, I don't know, misplaced bravado, silliness. Just pulled out a just pulled a gun out and started shooting. I shouldn't have done that. Just being stupid. He was running away. I know. He also told that these are the silly kids. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to extrapolate this Maze character onto 
you know, urban youth. I don't want to demonize urban youth. But but for those who commit so many of these crimes that you can't make sense of, there's a reason you can't make sense of it, because there's no sense to it. This this maze guy is giving you a really a useful insight into the thinking or complete lack thereof that is present, the emptiness, the vacuousness, uh, the how lost some of these uh, young people are. And, you know, you can have empathy for the plight of people in, growing up in tough neighborhoods and and not having role models and so on and so forth. But that empathy has to stop when they decide, and they, he decided, I know, that's acknowledgement. I know what I was doing Just when he decided to engage in murder and mayhem. He's done. He's gone. And the message needs to get, it should be, and the message needs to get back to the ecosystem that that's what happens if you decide to go down this path. And that's not the message that's being sent in Kansas City or Chicago or New York or any other urban center right now. And real quick, too, May said uh, in the hospital that he started to hesitate shooting because he knew there were kids there and then stated, but they could all have guns. Right. Wonderful, wonderful mitigation. Good good luck with that. Um, This is why uh, criminal defense attorneys tell clients like May's, please do not speak again. Until I ask you to. Steve and Roselle, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Dan and Amy. I just want to point out the Kansas City prosecutor carefully said they did not know each other as individuals. She didn't say anything about recognizing each other as gang or whether symbols were flashed. Yeah, true. I, I don't know. And it's not, it's not, there's no reference to gangs or gang affiliations in the, uh, in the documents, the charging documents that were released, these probable cause statements. But, but you know, t- if they weren't members of gangs, that should be even more chilling to you. Right. And I, they say there were adults that could just be 18. They looked young. Yeah, they're, I, they're 18, I think they are 18 and 19 or 19 and 20. I mean, but, but, but of course. I mean, the, the preponderance of the crime. Young men and in urban centers... Young black men. So what do you want to do about it? Other than not call them thugs and not demonize them and excuse them as being silly. Since that they're it? adults, could we call them thugs? Frank, Board of Trade. Yeah, anybody who says that this is a lack of parental uh, oversight or lack of a father in the family, this is delusional. These people are psychopaths. They have chemical disorders. Uh, they have connection, brain connection disorders. Uh, this is the issue. Thanks for the call, Frank. A lot of text messages. The raging narcissism, narcissism, excuse me, of this generation. And then Dan and Amy, they all brought guns with them. Isn't that what we call premeditated? Why are they all armed? Why, 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 why? Um, it's going to take a long time to figure out the why answers. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of case specificity to that answer. Every individual is a bit different. 
But I think the pressing answer, I think that where there needs to be a sense of urgency is what are we going to do about it immediately? You know, this is uh, all this this why stuff is Kamala Harris going to the northern triangle countries to get to the root causes of the uh, lack of border security. Um, The immediate charge is to secure the border. You want to figure out uh, what's happening in Honduras or El Salvador. Fine. The immediate charge is border security. You want to find out the pathologies and the traumas that are being that are suffered from residents of high crime neighborhoods and kids growing up in that environment. And we know from a lot of study that there is real trauma associated with growing up in that sort of environment. And I'm empathetic to it. I'm happy to think about it and discuss it and talk intelligently about how to to mitigate it, how to intervene. But the immediate charge is that anybody who goes down the path of violent crime is removed from society for a long time, if not permanently. That's the immediate charge. Then I've got all kinds of time for that other conversation. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The more you listen, the more, you listen. The more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560. The answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, What's happening between uh, BLM Brandon and the state-funded media, the NPR Times? Yeah, they had a little little, uh, dust-up yesterday. He's trying to improve his image and uh, meet with reporters, but he chooses which ones he wants, and it was going to be 20 minutes, now it's 10 minutes. And uh, tell us what happened yesterday at the Sun-Times. Well, it was Monday, but yeah, the... um he had a scheduled sit down with the Sun, the NPR Times' Politburo, and um, uh, as a Franz Spielman reports, whatever happened uh, to Michael Sneep? Sneeding. She's still there. She's still there. Psst. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes. When Press Secretary Ronnie Reese, seen canoodling, <laughs> uh, insisted the entire editorial board meeting be off the record. The um, editorial page editor refused to accept those unprecedented terms. Uh, 
Johnson's mouthpiece made the argument for him. He never said a word, and then he signed off the Zoom session. Zoom? Why, I mean, can't you just walk across the street? Go to the... Okay. Anyway. Dan, um, some people have COVID, okay? Yeah, If, if it course. saves one life. I assume the, all the, the plexiglass uh, uh, guards and, and idiot circles are still up at the NPR Times in the broom closet where they publish that pamphlet. But regardless, um, boy, I... You know, I I hate when, again, allies don't get along. We were talking about this yesterday with BLM Brandon and Jelly Belly and, and Tony, Tony, Tony. I just, you know, you just want the party to be united, present a united front, one complementing the other, the the sum being greater than the, or the part, the whole being greater than the sum of the parts and all of that business and so forth. So So he can't even have a, a civil conversation with uh, his, uh, his his allies <laughs> allies is his com shop yeah. part of his com shop and um you know and they have to again keep up appearances oh this has to be on the record we, you're going to pretend to be uh, an executive we're going to pretend to be journalists so let's everybody keep up appearances he's not playing his part BLM Brandon 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could also text us, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. And uh, this has a mouthpiece for the men and women of always in power in Chicago, Franz Spielman, <laughs> another phony journalist. If Mayor Brandon Johnson, and that's how deep her voice is, by the way, if Mayor Brandon Johnson even had a honeymoon with the news media, it's over after less than 10 months in office. The City Hall press corps has turned hostile, openly frustrated with a mayor who is seldom accessible and evasive when he does take questions. Oh, boy. Now, see, now we got a little bit of of conflict and that uh, that sells pamphlets that gets people's attention. So now we have a show that we can watch and we can obsess about it. and We can pretend that they're not on the same side and we can pretend that this conflict is real. Wonderful. That should draw our attention away from matters of actual importance, don't you think? 312-642-5600, turnkey.proanswer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. What do you think of those communist pamphleteers at the Sun-Times? Taking it to BLM branded, speaking truth to power. Huh? It's turning around. Oh, he's going to get his comeuppance. Right? Is Brandon Johnson about to be hoist by his own batar? We'll have the highlights 10 p.m. News at 11. I mean, really? You're bu- Is anybody buying this? Anybody buying this uh, little show that's being put on for you? I mean, they they know you like the show, so they're putting one on for you. The question is, will you will you continue to pay attention to it? Will you continue to pull up a seat, and watch it, and uh, believe what they're telling you is true? And uh, if you don't like that show, they got some others. We're going to sue the big oil companies. The city of Chicago is taking out big oil. I don't have time. I got a black wife and three black children at home, and I'm raising all of them. Now I'm suing the big oil companies. I don't have time to talk to Fran Spielman and her communist friends 
at that uh, NPR Times pamphlet. Yeah, right? So what, for climate, what is it? The damage that by denying science, they're negatively impacting the climate, our shoreline, the air we breathe, the water you drink. They're evil incarnate and they need to pay up because we need the money for migrants. Don't you know? You don't like that? I got another one for you. Uh, The cops are getting pulled out of the schools finally after shot spotters uh, end date has been announced. So we had a big week. You know, he, he doesn't have time. Well, nobody, like... nobody in America. No. <laughs> Whoa. Hello. Stop. No one. No one. Not a single person mm-hmm. in the Western world questions Brandon Johnson's leadership. And that's coming right from the source. He said so. He was busy last night. He uh, tweeted out. He was at WGN Studios thanking Tom Skilling for serving the greatest freaking city in the world for nearly 50 years. Did he Through the present, good weather and the bad weather, and every day in between, Dan, that is what he tweeted. Did he present uh, the, uh, the key to the city to uh, Tom Skilling and the Thruple that he's a part of? Oh, the Thruple. Thruple's still together. Thruple's going to be traveling more now. Um, no, he One Thruple begets another. So you got Pritzker, Preckwinkle, and Brandon Johnson, and Tom Skilling and his two boy toys. I think they should, like, double date. They've been they've been thruppling for a while now. I think they're really committed. No, of course, and and hey, I I know love is love. I know love, is and love. it's uh, it's that's what life is about. It's about uh, who you love and who and which back. two men love you back. It's out there. It's not like we're not making this up. We know. Uh, no, I know. And it's I, the, no. This going on for whatever. And I, I hope nobody's finding anything untoward about any of this because it's all completely normal center cut and it's all to be celebrated they're celebrating all right absolutely i'm surprised they weren't up there with them when he got the award Hmm. well you know i i don't i don't know i don't know you know the nature of it i just know that we should obviously provide full-throated and i do mean that celebration uh so so we have we have all right so so you got you got the uh, the big oil suit wow that's a headline grabber that's do uh you got cops out of the schools you got shot spotter off the streets so i mean it's going pretty good uh and then you know i mean i think the solution for uh, blm brandon and this hostile press <laughs> in chicago he has to deal with so hostile ah oh. when will the press give brandon johnson a break <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's I'm so sick of this press hounding these good Democrats in office. It's so unfair. Right wing extremists at the NPR Times, the network affiliates. Um, so it's I think there's an easy solution. I think he just uh, takes a page out of the Lightfoot playbook. Yeah. No more honky. I'm oh. not talking to honkies anymore. Oh, I remember that. Just put a big, put a big like uh, honkies with a with an X through it flag on City Hall, and Even then we'll sh- know, we'll know. And if it comes down, then we'll know he's willing to talk to honkies again. Well, you know, the, and the hypocrisy because she's married to a honky. Yeah. I wonder what uh, the uh, new Soros owned WBBM News's take is. I'm going to be on this. You know, WBBM Radio. It's 
Uh, it's the uh, news talk station in Chicago. Gives you the, just the news. I like to listen to WBBM for just the headlines, just the news. I just want to know what's going on. Well, then why are you listening to WBBM? If you didn't realize it was left-wing agitprop and their slant on everything previously, well, uh, the uh, mask has been removed. Now that Soros' uh, snot-nosed kid has uh, orchestrated this $415 million buyout of Odyssey, well, Odyssey's debt, which makes the Soros Fund the largest stakeholder in Odyssey, which owns WBBM News here, WBBM Radio, in addition to a bunch of similarly situated, quote-unquote, news stations in other big markets. So you got the NPR Times, and you got your BBM News. I, I just I read for the headlines, just want to know what's going on. You know, what's going on in the neighborhoods, the street? Because these are neighborhood street people. They, they got their ear to the ground. <laughs> Remember after the election when oh, Bernie Tafoya, who I love to death because he does that ad issue program on the weekends. Remember when he came up to me and he said, well, we know what's going on. I'm like, well, what's going on? It's like, Ballas is joining AM 560 and Dan Props out. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you're really on it, Bernie. Yeah. yeah. I don't know who the heck made that one up. I'm sure I'm sure Bernie Tafoya was the last to know that uh, the Soros Fund was coming in and buying out uh, the owner of his employer. I don't know. Um, I guess who Soros' new love at, is. At, at, at issue is, is Craig Delamore, by the Craig way. De- I'm sorry. It was Craig Delamore. Excuse me. Yeah. Not Bernie Tafoya. I think yeah. Bernie Tafoya is retired. I'm not mistaken. But, um, no, it was Craig Delamore that said that to me about Paul Vallis. Yeah, I, I, and I actually like Craig, but I mean, um, oh, one of the I few I do. He's, he's a good I mean, guy. Yeah, he is. He's professional. He's, he's actually a smart guy, and he actually does try and play it down the middle. There's a couple of those well, left. Bernie is still on the station. I hear Mike Scott screaming like a madman no. in the hallway. All right, someone, there you go. I'm glad. I'm, I'm so glad. Mike. Well, he is for now, but you know, we'll see what Soros wants. He may want a little bit more edge than Craig Delamore and Tafoya uh, can give him when it comes to reading the news in quotation marks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just go to down the dial there or up the dial from us, I guess, and uh, to get the news. Yeah, that's what you're getting. Take the fish hook out of your mouth when you go up the dial. Phil and Darian, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, listen, shame on the media, the hostile media, for thinking that he is accessible when they want him. Don't they know? And everybody else, don't we all know that he has a black wife and black kids to take care of? Have a yeah. nice day. Thanks for the call, Phil. Uh, Will and Skokie. Hey, good morning. Um, this is just an extension of what they did with Trump. With Trump, they're trying to take down Trump, but they're also trying to, to set the precedent for civil lawsuits against corporations because the COVID funds are running out, the COVID slush fund that they had, and they lead a new slush fund. And if you go after the corporations, you get these huge rulings like the New York judge did. This is why they're going after the oil companies. Watch them go after all these other people with lawfare and civil suits for well, huge amounts of money so they can basically fill their coffers. Also, we got to remember not, not just some, not just not just fill not, not just fill their coffers, but, you know, like the big tobacco litigation, it fills the coffers of all their trial right. lawyer friends who then fill their campaign coffers. Exactly. Exactly. It, it's basically um the left feeds on itself, and that's why it's self-contradictory, and, uh, you know, it's going to crumble. But unfortunately, if they got enough judges going through the civil suit route where they have a lower standard, 
you know they're gonna they're gonna get crap loads of money. Um, it, I got it's it. gonna be interesting. Yeah, gonna, thanks for thanks for the call. Well, right, I mean they're parasites that always need a new host, lest they have to right as he says feast on one another. Yeah, Dan in uh, Salem, Wisconsin. Hi, Dan and Amy. Uh, the only reason why I'll put on BBM News Radio, I live in Salem Township in Wisconsin, is for the weather report. That's it. Otherwise, everything else makes me sick. You don't have a. And that's you, your. You, you don't have a. You don't have a. You don't have an app on your phone. You don't have a phone that shows you what the weather is when you turn it on. No. Well, I got a business, so I have a flip phone. It's real rugged because I'm in the oh. tree work. Oh, okay. I carry it up in the aerial. If with me, that those smartphones they crack easy, you know. Well, all right. Yeah, the weather report, anyway, I guess, hey, up in the hey, trees. One more, yeah. one more thing. That Chicago Tribune, you know what that's good for? Cleaning fish on. That's about it. Thanks for the call, uh, Dan. Uh, oh, boy. Oh, boy, what? Now oh, Dan no. from Salem has opened up a can of worms. <sighs> I don't know how to... I mean, it's, it's a lot for uh, everybody to handle, so I don't want to burden people. Uh-huh. You know, the, the rift between... The NPR Times and Brandon Johnson is a lot to process. I, I don't want to weight people down as they're just beginning their day. But State Representative uh, 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 Kelly Cassidy, uh, yes. she's a lesbian. She wants you to know. She's a Democrat from Chicago. She, she's a lesbian. She yeah. got purple oh, streaks okay. in her. She wants you to know. All right. uh, well, I, okay, I know now. She tells everybody, so I just want to make sure everybody knows because I, you know, it'd be nice if you acknowledge it if you do happen to run into her and, and Who's congratulate her. Who's not gay her. anymore? Okay, go on. Uh, oh yeah, what is she proposing? It's like uh, five hundred dollars for abortions or something? Oh, I don't know. Probably, um, but no, she's uh, there's a rift between her and, by extension, the LGBTQ2S plus 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 community and the Chicago Tribune because it turns out. Uh oh, should I sit down for this? The Chicago Tribune editorial board is, quote, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. Take your time, Dan. Let it breathe. Let it breathe. It's all male. Oh, my God, no. And nearly all white. (laughs) Voters should look beyond yet another unfortunate decision by the all male and nearly all white Tribune editorial board And consider the facts, as reported by the Tribune's own news team, because the uh, crime that the Chicago Tribune editorial board committed, in addition to being all male, and by the way, uh, and nearly all white, by the way, Kelly Cassidy is nearly all white, too, but I digress. Um, That editorial board is, um, they're they're Minos, those men on that editorial board, right? Right. Men in name only. or maybe maybe uh, Mikos, men in chromosomes only, because they're not actually men, as we well know. Uh, but uh, this is she's very upset. Uh, the nearly all white Kelly Cassidy is very, very upset about this nearly all white editorial board at the Tribune, another pamphlet, if you're not familiar with it, that uh, purports to cover Chicago, because uh, that editorial board endorsed. Eileen O'Neill Burke for Cook County State's Attorney over Clayton Harris, who is not nearly all white. Um, I was right. State Rep. Kelly Cassidy, who's lesbian, right, Dan? She wants, she wants to, you to know that. Right, but she wants to propose a new measure that would p- provide a $500 tax credit 
for abortion providers, abortion seekers, legal guardians of abortion seekers, and public school teachers who moved to Illinois due to abortion bans. You know, I got an idea. Um, Isn't that great? For, you know, to make this more of an abortion magnet. Um, if you live in another state, why don't you bring your dead baby here and we'll give you 500 bucks for it? Can somebody propose that? Like we're just you know, like we have stacks of tax dollar cash. We're just going to pay people. We're already paying for people's abortions. We're going to give them a $500 tax credit to kill their baby. Uh, how do you like the show so far? <laughs> how, how do you how do you like the show? The 2024 Chicago, Illinois show brought to you by the uh, the new Marxists in charge of your city, your county, your state. You enjoying it? It's kind of entertaining, isn't it? From a distance. Three, uh, well, we'll take more of your calls later. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. One of my favorite COVID era songs, Five Times August. This is great. That's, I hope they play that at Tony Fauci's funeral. Uh, speaking of which, uh, science was in town stopping by UIC, you know, for some glad handing, back slapping. Oh, I'm sure he paid events, oh, made a paid personal appearance. He's got to make his money still, Dan, you know? And, um,. ABC 7 News was able to get an exclusive with Tony Fauci. Oh, my God. <laughs> Where they can... Do we talk like this all morning long? Yeah. I will talk, your news guy voice. Uh, talk and, uh, of course, um, uh, lob up some softballs like they do for the local politicians. Oh, boy. Any hard questions whatsoever? Mm, no, 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 no. Here's... I know what you're thinking. Oh, it's so interesting. I'm glad Tony Fauci is in town. I wonder what worries him these days, because I want to align my anxiety with whatever concerns Tony Fauci, don't you think? I, oh, can I guess what worries him sure. these days? You can guess. Um, not enough people are have their eighth shot. Close. It's really unfortunate to have an anti-science approach at a time when science is responsible for the development of interventions that have saved millions of lives worldwide. And when he says science, of course, he means himself. Because, he, again, he is science. Did you ever mm -hmm. know that you're my hero? Mm -hmm. uh, he is the wind beneath your mask. Uh, Tony Fauci, thinking, uh, he's a reflective guy, thinking about how could we do it better? Mm-hmm. What's the big takeaway from the last three years, which in some places like Chicago persist? Our response to COVID. Lessons learned? He's got a few. Well, I think it was the, the fractionation of our healthcare response. It wasn't unified. Some cities, some states were doing it one way. Some cities and some states were doing another. More central planning. Yes. Wait, wait, wait. Hey, we nailed it. Lack of one size fits all was the problem during COVID. Next time around, no laboratories of democracy. We impose from D.C. That's the translation. How could it be anything else? 
We can't let Florida do something different than, say, Illinois, because then Florida makes Illinois look bad, and it makes us look bad. Don't you love it? The, only, the real problem with the COVID response, not jackbooted enough. One size fits all, imposed from D.C., no waivers, no exemptions. But anyway, now that he's in retirement, he's not getting distracted by things. He's uh, back to his laser-like focus on what? Yeah, you know. My job is science, medicine, and public health to save people's lives. Oh. <laughs> I focus like a laser beam on that. Get him a and I'm focusing on that. You put the other things aside as being distractions. He doesn't have time for your politics. He's too busy saving lives because that's what he does. That's just what he does, gosh darn it, and you're not going to stop him. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> that guy is really something. He is really a piece of work. And, uh, he's not humble at all. Oh, my. Oh, oh boy. What, is, what does science. that word even mean? I am, I am science. I mean, I am I just, woman. Hear me roar. There, look, he is. He he doesn't play politics. He's never played politics. He's never operated outside his lane. No. And he's going to rewrite that history just like he's trying to rewrite the history of the COVID response. Oh, by the way, some um, rather distressing uh, news out. Speaking of science, yeah, uh, this. Uh, study that was done on vaccines on the the covid vaccines specifically that was published in a uh, scientific journal called vaccine i'm sure uh, fauci hasn't time, had time to quite digest it yet and which is why abc7 was nice enough not to ask him about this you know i don't want to make him to be made uncomfortable he, does, he doesn't have time for these distractions no. Saving lives, goodness sakes. Anyway, uh, researchers from the Global Vaccine Data Network analyzed 99 million people who received jabs in eight countries and monitored for increases in 13 medical conditions. Listen to uh, Fox News medical contributor Dr. Jeanette Neshawat uh, explain sort of the top line of the study. 99 million million people worldwide who were vaccinated were looked at. And what the researchers did, and this research and this data was published in a journal last week called Vaccine. And what they did was they specifically looked for 13 different medical conditions. For example, they looked for myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart. They looked for blood disorders that caused blood clots. They looked for neurological disorders, like, for example, Guillain Beret syndrome, which is a, a disorder of the nervous system. And they looked for other types of diseases as well. And what they found was that there was an increase in these types of medical conditions after taking the vaccine. And even though it was a small increase, this is important information. Because, for example, if you have a history of blood clots, you want to talk to your doctor before you go out and get this vaccine that could make you more prone to developing another blood clot which could be life-threatening, um, or if you have a history of inflammation in your heart or inflammation in your brain or your spinal cord, you need to be aware of these side effects. Now, potential side effects from vaccines are not new, but this further confirms that they do exist and they must be acknowledged. Well, I mean, hey, a thanks, lot of for people, me, yeah. thanks for letting me know now. 
a lot of people don't know if they have an inflamed heart or are they're prone to blood clotting. That's why nine people died, remember, after taking the J&J shot? The one shot you don't have to get to, you won and you're done. And people were done after taking that because well, they were prone we'll, to blood, blood clots, but they didn't know it, doctor. We'll, we'll get to the, the results of that study uh, momentarily, but okay. Dr. Peter Marks, who is the FDA commissioner at present, mm-hmm. was before the COVID Select Committee in the House that's chaired by Dr. Brad Wenstrup. I think he may be the only doctor in the House, pun intended, um, from Ohio. And listen to this exchange about the VAERS reporting of adverse outcomes. Remember, this is the FDA's self-reporting system for vaccine injury. Um, as of February 2024, VAERS reports for COVID-19 vaccines total significantly higher than all other vaccines combined since 1990, uh, as, as, as reported. Uh, this, surprising, this is a surprising figure. Dr. Marks was the government prepared for such an avalanche of reports to VAERS, and it kind of goes with what we just mentioned. So, Chair Wenstrup, thank you so much for that question, and I apologize about your name before. It shows when you're nervous, things can happen. Um, uh, but your, the point is extremely well taken. We, we tried to be prepared for that, but the, the avalanche of reports was tremendous, and it, again, required retasking people on the fly uh, to, uh, I think for, and I, I'll let my CDC colleagues speak to this, we, we had to usually staff up um, and had many meetings uh, working to increase our uh, ability to go through these reports. Well, as long as you had a lot of meetings about it, that's the important thing. But they hid the data from the American people we're finding out now, that there was an avalanche of adverse effects. I mean, we knew of some, but that's a big, I mean, that's uh, even if they hit of them. Even if they had uh, had organized it in a competent and timely fashion, who was going to platform it? I mean, it would be nice that would be accessible and timely, but that's beyond the capacity of the FDA, although it's nice to hear Dr. Marx is very good-humored about it. Not a big deal, I guess. Um, and we've talked to many infectious disease experts over the last several months about this. Anybody have a handle on the VAERS data? Anybody uh, looking at that? Uh, what are we going to do and where's congressional action, including with the select committee, to propose some sort of uh, response, remediation for the vaccine injured since it was all but imposed on people by the state? Oh, and um, y- you may uh, y- your, your FDA commissioner may be surprised about the avalanche, as you described it, of VAERS reports. But uh, once you look at this study that we were just mentioning, shouldn't be surprised. And this is the kind of stuff that if you talked about, you were an anti-vax interloper that was killing grandma and grandpa and, uh, and, and keeping us mired in the pandemic and so on and so forth. Because God forbid we treat anybody like an adult and say, here's everything we know about competing risks and benefits. Now make your own decision. God forbid we do that in a free society. The um, results, increased risk of health conditions after COVID vaccine from this study. Swelling of the brain and spinal cord after the first dose of the Moderna vax. 3.78 times increase. Not 3.7.8%, 
3.78 fold, almost quadruple increase. Now, it's a swelling of the brain and spinal cord, especially if you're young, otherwise healthy people. The risk of that happening is de minimis. So it's still relatively de minimis, but it's increased. And so then you say, well, okay, give me the same profile of a person and say, what's the risk associated with getting COVID? And, and particularly when something else forgotten in this entire conversation, just completely dismissed, the therapeutics to treat COVID as opposed to the vax and the risk profile on that. That's how you treat people like adults. You, you, you have that conversation with your doctor, with your public health uh, official. But no, 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 no. Shut up. If you disagree, if you ask any questions, you're an anti-vaxxer, you're a tinfoil hat, you're a heretic. And you need to be ostracized from society. You need to pay more for your health insurance. You can't send your kids to school. You can't go to work. Nope. You can't go to Shut social up, events. Shut up, put your mask on, and get jabbed. You wear the scarlet UV unvaxxed. Oh, you yeah, you, you had a... 3.78% Moderna first dose, swelling a 3.78 fold, I should say, swelling of brain and spinal cord Moderna first dose. Blood clots, AstraZeneca, 3.23 fold increase. Gillian Barr, which you heard the doctor mention, AstraZeneca first dose, 2.49 fold increase. Myocarditis, Pfizer first dose, 2.78 fold increase. Myocarditis, Moderna first dose, 3.48 fold increase, more than Pfizer. Pericarditis, Moderna first dose, 1.74 fold increase. Myocarditis, Pfizer second dose, 2.86 fold increase. Listen to this. Myocarditis, Moderna second dose, 6.10 fold increase. Pericarditis, AstraZeneca, third dose, 6.91 fold increase. Pericarditis, myocarditis, heart conditions. And then you go third and fourth doses for myocarditis and pericarditis for Pfizer and Moderna, and it's two to two and a half fold increases, the incidence, the risk of myocarditis, pericarditis. These are serious medical conditions. They could be especially, fatal. yeah, especially if <laughs> you're were. older and you have other um, health challenges. But no, no, no. Don't talk about this. Shh. Take your jab, Robert Bloomingdale. Oh, it's so disgusting. I mean, you're absolutely right, Dan and Amy, putting uh, medical uh, experiments out there. Over the uh, uh, the almighty dollar being the top of the, um, the the top of the line, and the second thing I want to say is I want to see uh, the question I'd like to ask Dr. Felci is how does it feel to be in a box with the bugs actually chewing you alive, my friend? Thank you. All right, Robert. Uh, Jeff Calcity. Uh, good morning, Dan and Amy. I think when uh, Trump becomes president, he should take money from, say, the Agriculture Department, the Education Department, and he should pay reparations to those people who had vaccine reactions from the shots that they got. All right. Thanks for the call, Jeff. Well, I mean, you know, we, we talked about it uh, the other week with uh, that uh, showdown that uh, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had with a with the Scottish gentleman who was vaccine injured and and. You know, at the national health system, the government health system in the UK, they have some sort of yellow card system for to compensate the vaccine injured. And it's bureaucratic. It's untimely. And I'm sure it's a mess because it's centrally planned. But, um, yeah, we're something similar in this country. I think that's a fair question. Richard Blue Island. 
Hey, Dan and Amy. I've got uh, Dr. Fauci's uh, song. It's called Vaccine. Vaccine, you don't have to put on a red light. Put on a red light. Vaccine, put on a red light. Vaccine. Okay, uh, Richard Sting. Uh, Glenn Oakbrook. Yeah, good morning, Dan and Amy. Um, Rand Paul had a good article in Imprimus, uh, December 2023, about the lessons from the great uh, COVID cover-up. And he uh, references C.S. Lewis' description of the moral busybody. Mm-hmm. Of all the tyranny, the tyranny sincerely uh, exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. Those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. Yeah, uh, that's uh, a classic from C.S. Lewis, who had a keen understanding of the human condition. It's unfortunate more Americans don't. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Hey, uh, remember that uh, IRS investigation into Hunter Biden and Biden Incorporated? Oh, yeah. How's that going? Uh, It's been such a long time. Are there any updates, Dan? Yeah. Do we have the attention span for it? I mean, after all that uh, has transpired in uh, Manhattan and in Atlanta and, of course, uh, the Robert Herr report on Biden's handling of or mishandling of classified information where he's not fit to stand trial, but he's fit to run the country. That was the sort of the top line. Well, yeah, Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist, uh, her uh, program online, Full Measure, it's a good one. She um, is uh, helping us prevent that investigation and those whistleblowers, so important to the investigation and our understanding of it, from being memory-holed which, of course, is the D.C. press course preference. You remember the IRS whistleblowers, Joe Ziegler, uh, gay American and Democrat. That's right. Remember? Oh, yeah, I remember. He, he remember testified, he testified to that. Testified. Yep. Yeah. And uh, Gary Shapley, who was the first to come forward. So uh, the whole point of the, oh, you know, you're persecuting baby boy Hunter. Uh, he had some problems back in the day with sawdust, apparently, some snorting sawdust. He had a sawdust addiction. Uh, we'll get to that. Yeah. But anyway, um, this was always about the whole picture, the whole enterprise, the whole, um, well, I mean, if Fawny Willis was giving perspective, one could potentially see a RICO crime syndicate here. But no, it was always about the hillbilly crime family from Wilmington and its patriarch, Joe Biden. So uh, going back to what these IRS investigators discovered and also what they believed to be true, Atkinson asks, this is uh, her question to Joe Ziegler, the, uh, the case agent on it. Actually, in both political parties, say things such as, 
there's no evidence tying Joe Biden to Hunter Biden's businesses or any improper activities. When you hear that, what do you think? I think it's blatantly false. I, I would wholeheartedly disagree with it. Mm-hmm. And um, for, first Ziegler you're going to hear, then Atkinson, then Shapley on the DOJ blocking their investigation. They believe there were ties. You just heard Ziegler say it. And that's when the justice system had to intercede to make sure these guys didn't pursue justice too far. We were never allowed to follow those leads that could lead to potential evidence that could move the ball down the hill. By May of 2020, Biden was steeped in his presidential run against Trump while Trump's own Justice Department was allegedly throwing up roadblocks to the IRS investigation into the Bidens. No one in IRS leadership disagreed that there were discrepancies, but they just completely uh, avoided their duties to act autonomously for the IRS, and they just allowed the Department of Justice to do really whatever they wanted, and that really exacerbated this entire issue. Mm-hmm. And then... Um... Just again, sort of reconstituting the timeline in your mind because it's been so long since, yeah, frankly, we've even talked about it, and it, it shouldn't be memory hold. These, uh, and especially when you have whistleblowers coming forward and putting themselves on the line to offer the details that you would never otherwise get. We would never otherwise know if these guys just decided to button their lips and not say anything. The charges recommended. You know, the rest of the timeline, 22 into 23. We ended up recommending the felony and misdemeanor tax charges in February of 2022. February of 2022, it now goes from IRS to DOJ as a recommended prosecution. But they say they fought more obstruction. The Department of Justice would only allow charges if federal prosecutors located in Washington, D.C. and California, where the alleged crimes occurred, agreed to go along. So I came to find out that the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office not only said no to partnering or no to bringing or helping us in bringing the, the charges, but they had also said that we don't think you have a case to bring it here in D.C., California had also said no to bringing charges in their district. So now we have D.C. saying no, California saying no. It's relatively unusual to be told no once you bring a case and write a report for charges. Correct. So we find out that California says no, and then May 15th, 2023 happens, and I, both Gary and I are removed from the investigation. Who told you guys you were off the case? The special agent in charge of the Washington, D.C. field office told us. Mm -hmm. uh, willful blindness and those who won't be dutifully, willfully blind have to be removed. And then, of course, we know the rest of this, too. I mean, there's nothing new here, but it's important to refresh recollections. As I said, the uh, the David Weiss special prosecutor uh, tries to, uh, well, U.S. Attorney for Delaware tries to, strike this unholy plea bargain that is rejected. And now we're still in the proceedings of prosecuting Hunter with Jamie Raskin and the rest of the uh, professional purveyors of propaganda on the Hill, continuing their picking on a, 
uh, a young man, not young, with uh, some you know substance abuse problems. Then has this has nothing to do and never involved Joe Biden, despite all the testimony from Hunter Biden business partners, former Hunter Biden business partners like Archer and Bobolinsky, that uh, Joe Biden was very much aware and very much involved and very much benefiting. Okay. Kevin Brock is former assistant director of Intel for the FBI, former principal deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center as well. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning, Dan, Amy. How are you? Good. Um, So, I mean, if you were the director of the FBI, if you were Christopher Wray, or if you were the director of the IRS, you know, I mean, which has essentially similar um, investigative powers within their space, Mm -hmm. what, what, what would you do after listening to those whistleblowers and and watching everything that has come to pass over the last few years? Well, in my the, first day in office. In this case, in this case. Yeah, just in the Biden in case. case, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, my my first day as director, I would get all the, the information that's available um, regarding the case and, and fulfill a promise that I would have made during my confirmation hearing to make it all transparent because this has to stop. Uh, I'm going to let you in on a little, a little secret here, a little inside baseball. The Justice Department is treating Democrats and liberals differently than they treat Republicans and conservatives. Am I breaking any news there? No, it's that's sort of been observably true, although, of course, you're shamed for saying it. Um, Maybe with your uh, pedigree, uh, there'll be less of an ability to do that. But yes, no, I appreciate it. No, it's it's abundantly clear right now. And, you know, the. The other secret is, is that to pursue a case against Joe Biden and his family is readily available. The predication for such a case exists. You don't need an Alexander Smirnoff making wild accusations of a $5 million payoff to make this case. You even don't even need whistleblowers to make this case. Just what we know in the public domain is enough for a man off the street to bring a case to a grand jury and and probably get an indictment for at least influence peddling. If there was any kind of a um, aggressive investigation into the money structuring that a Congress has unveiled or, or, or been able to discern through their subpoenas, uh, there should be a case for money laundering that could be brought um, you don't have grandchildren funding their grandfather through uh, myriad bank accounts spread out all over the place. So prima facie, there's a, there's a strong case there. If 10% of the energy that's gone into prosecuting Donald Trump in New York and Atlanta were applied to this case, uh, we'd have had an indictment already. Uh, since you mentioned uh Alexander Smirnoff, this uh, FBI informant that made the allegation that uh, the big guy, that would be Joe Biden and Hunter, were bribed by the uh, oligarch in control of Burisma. 
Uh, he's been indicted for perjury. That the uh, argument is that he made that up, and so now you have Democrats running to CNN and MSNBC to say House Republicans are colluding with the Russians. They've stood up this phony informant with phony allegations, and it's more evidence that Trump is a Manchurian candidate, and so on and so forth. Well, well, wait a second. If he did perjure himself, I I don't know, but if he did, um, well, that, he was the FBI's asset for the last decade. Yeah, so, so, so how is that House Republicans or Donald Trump? The, the, well, the House Republicans, frankly, uh, and you may not agree with me on this, but they have nobody to blame but themselves for this debacle. Okay. They're the ones that insisted on getting the raw reporting of Smirnoff alleging $5 million payments to the Bidens uh, before that information had been vetted. Uh, or uh, let me put it this way. They wanted the initial report. We don't know how much it had been vetted after that because the information was provided in 2020. Uh, And they wanted that information so they could take it and run with it and point fingers and say, look, there's fire behind the smoke and everything else. This was raw reporting. This in the FBI is taking information without checking it out. Subsequently, uh, I would believe that the Bureau probably did their due diligence and vetting to find out whether there was anything behind these allegations on their face. They seem spectacular. So that they should have received it with, with some doubt. Um, but, yeah, but wait a second. Can I just stop you there? Because, because as you say, this was, this was the 1023 that was released is from the, the right. form is from 2020. So, yeah. so, I mean, so an allegation that uh, explosive, as you say, well, why wasn't that vetted, you know, in real time, and and then some sort of notation made or some sort of follow up report to say this is credible or this isn't credible. Why, why would you have to wait four years till House Republicans unearth it before you would have the FBI vet the, the credibility of it? We don't know whether that was done. And if it was done, that wasn't requested by Congress. They just wanted the raw reporting. They didn't want any follow up documentation on whether the information was was credible or not. Uh, they just wanted the raw reporting. And do, 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 in, do you think you think the FBI set House Republicans up on this? Because because if, if, if say I want this 1023 from this uh, FBI uh, confidential informant and and you say, OK, well, here it is. But I know there's uh, additional reporting saying this is not a credible. Uh, we've determined this isn't a credible allegation. I'm just going to hold that back to see if Republicans trip over themselves, like you say. I uh... I would be surprised at that. I would. Here's how I would characterize it. And in fairness to Christopher Ray, and I've criticized him on other issues, but on mm-hmm. this issue, he said, "You really don't want this report. I'm not going to release it. It's raw reporting. If it's false, it's damaging to the reputations of the people that are being accused." That's the way the FBI rolls with all source reporting. That's why it's never dis- disclosed because 50 percent of the time it's not accurate. That's the nature of dealing with confidential sources. Sometimes they're spectacularly accurate. Sometimes they're full of BS with a capital B and a capital S. Right. Well, then how is Smirnov colluding with the Russians? The accusations there that they've documented some contacts between Smirnov and Russian operatives um, over the years. And his name is Smirnov. There's no doubt that that's probably the case. Uh, that's probably what made him interesting and valuable on other issues inside the FBI or the advancement of other cases. <clears throat> but um, just to get back to Dan's question, I don't know if it's a setup, but they reluctantly let the Republicans look at the document. I don't think they ever did turn it over completely. 
Uh, and I think they would probably express to all the caveats, look, this is, this is unvetted information. And, and whether or not they told them at the time, we have, we have other information that, that knocks this down. I don't know. Uh, but there was an eagerness, certainly, on the Republican side to, to take that information and run with it. Well, if, the, if, if, if what you're saying yeah, the, turns uh, to check out, then, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm happy to criticize Republicans for being um, slipshod and, um, um, and, and, you know— uh, They wanted it so less, less than judicious in terms of the, the pace of these things. The, the, but the point is not wanting it. The, the point is—, is it still goes back to though this other matter, um, especially since this has been a bit of a pattern with unreliable confidential informants. And I suppose that to some extent, that just comes with the the business of of the territory. Flip, flip yeah. yeah, flipping people. But but I mean, but for an extended period of time, I mean, it, you, at some point, if you have a confidential informant that you don't believe is credible, then why are you keeping them around? Number one. Um, and then number two, now put this in the context of the other CIs that were hanging around for a long time, which, of course, the Democrats did the same thing on uh, and and maybe um, for even more nefarious reasons. I'm thinking about Christopher Steele. I'm thinking about Danchenko. I'm thinking about Helper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, <laughs> the, on- the only thing I could say is that one of the hardest roles for an FBI agent is developing and managing sources because of the dynamic of the fact that sometimes they are they provide excellent information that makes cases and evidence that puts people in jail while at the same time very same sources giving you rabbit holes and disinformation and lies that you have to manage and have to navigate so sometimes yes it gets to a point where you you jettison a source and say this isn't worth the this this juice isn't worth the squeeze Uh, but other times you just have to you have to manage it. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's fair. I mean, I, uh, something else though too. I uh, wanted to get your reaction to, of course, the reporting from mm-hmm. Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi last week that, um, and this necessarily implicates the FBI, in, in addition to perhaps more mainly John Brennan at CIA, that the uh, Russian collusion investigation was not something that oh, was happened upon because. Uh, because George Papadopoulos made an offhanded comment to Stephen Halper and 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 an Australian diplomat and 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 talked to Stephen Halper and then oh this thing and no it was orchestrated from the outset it was John Brennan and ostensibly others that initiated this right from the beginning and pressed it for as long as they could into Trump's presidency. I read that. Um... I would love to see their sourcing on that. Um, I'm not discounting it, but I've also heard other other explanations similar to that 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 really in the end didn't hold water. There's no doubt that Brennan and Clapper and others were vehemently anti-Trump and in lining up efforts to disrupt his campaign at that time, which the Comey FBI willingly participated in. I, I have no doubt about that, but I don't know. And I'm not sure I can comment accurately on the depth of, of those accusations by Taibbi. Uh, when we, um, you know, talk to you, we always like to do a stop, look, and listen um, with respect to your former employer, the FBI. So, um, how, where do things stand with Christopher Ray and the FBI in your mind, uh, 
now with, you know, in, in on all the various issues, including, frankly, border security, since Christopher Ray was able to muster the words that uh, lawlessness at the border is a national security issue. Yeah, not saying enough. Uh, and I was one of the signers of that letter uh, that we sent to Congress. I think you had Jody on last week to talk about that. Uh, Jody Weiss. Um, mm-hmm. And and we have grave concerns about the surge of single military age males from hostile regions and countries coming into this country. Not enough is being said about that by the FBI, by the DHS, by and even Congress. Frankly, uh, this is a huge gaping threat to the nation right now, a clear and present danger, and uh, we're not paying enough attention. And and the and if the FBI director, uh, whoever that is, needs to step up and. And 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 make noise about it. Absolutely more noise than being made right now. Kevin Brock, former assistant director of Intel for the FBI, former principal deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center as well. Kevin, thank you as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's morning answer on AM560. The answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, our uh, friend Brett Baer had uh, FedEx CEO Fred Smith on his uh, program the other day. Fred Smith uh, famously said, to succeed in business... The main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. It's worked. You can't be put, yeah, I mean, in very simplistic ways, yes. Yeah. Well, focusing on the main thing made him a billionaire, so you should probably listen to Fred Smith's advice. Um, Fred Smith uh, giving his perspective on the American economy. Uh, take a listen. I mean, you know, a guy who ships billions of packages around the world and, and the logistics and everything associated with a, a global company like FedEx, uh, he, may, he may have some insights in ter- terms of what's really happening on the ground. Well, the, the growth that we continue to report, the GDP in the fourth quarter, was not because of invention and innovation, the things that have made the country great, along with trade and our, uh, the strength of our dollar. It's been because we've borrowed from our grandchildren and we're spending money today primarily to employ more people in government, health care, services, uh, and other pursuits that are not being really driven by the fundamental engines of growth, which is national productivity and invention and innovation. Everybody hopes that artificial intelligence will be the new, new thing that will create a lot of wealth. But to date, over the last couple of years, we've simply been borrowing from our grandchildren and living beyond our means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, borrowing against tomorrow to pay for yesterday. That doesn't sound like a formula uh, for uh, robust growth and um, economic opportunity. Uh, let's see if uh, our next guest agrees with one Fred Smith. Steve Moore, economist, Govzilla author. Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning, guys. Uh, so what say you? Is Fred Smith uh, over the target? Uh, no, he's spot on. By the way, Fred Smith is one of the guys I admire most in America. He's an incredible entrepreneur, one of the great entrepreneurs of all time. And, and 
he just he has his he has his finger on the economy, and he's he's exactly right about what's happening with what we're doing to our uh, to our economy. Two trillion dollars of debt each year is going to destroy our country. Mm-hmm. So, um, that being said, I am a regular reader of your Unleash Prosperity newsletter, yep. and I see um, an admonition in your latest edition in the direction of House Republicans. Don't fall prey to a quote unquote budget uh, or government shutdown. Right. Um, yeah. So so on the one hand, Fred Smith is right. But on the other hand, just uh, muddle along doing the things that we've been doing low these many years. Well, there's a new development, by the way, and you'll see that in the hotline this morning, which hasn't quite gone on out yet. But uh, what the latest is that what we were recommending is to just take the 1% across the board cut, uh, what's called a continuing resolution, just fund everything at last year's level at 1% less. Now, I think we should be cutting agencies by 10, 20, 25%, but given the fact that Republicans have a two-seat majority in the House, and they don't control the, the, the Senate, and they don't control the White House, they, they really can't have a lot of control over this process. But here's what's interesting. So the Republicans... Uh, that's become their position. Okay, we'll just take the 1% across-the-board cut. Guess what? The Democrats say, no way. We can't live with a 1% cut in government spending at a time that they're borrowing $1.5 trillion a year. So I think they've flipped the tables. Part of this is just being smart politically. Uh, I don't think Republicans can win a government shutdown battle. I've lived through 11 of them in my 30 years in Washington, and every single year, uh, that happens. Uh, the blame is always put on the Republicans. So I think it's much smarter to say to Democrats, okay, we'll go for the 1% tiny little cut in spending, and then let the Democrats go to the American people and say why they'd rather shut down the government and take this teeny weeny little cut in spending. Right. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but of course, this, you know, surrender today so you can surrender tomorrow. That's been the Republican playbook for, <laughs> for a long time. What, what would yeah. you, okay, Dan, what would you have them do? Well, I mean, I agree with you. I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, Pollyannish about the realpolitik here and the, the slim majority in the House and the, the number of big spending Republicans. So I, I would... Um, I would lay out the case, though, almost I mean, I would really like do it in a naked fashion in terms of the rhetoric, not in terms of my presentation. Um, the 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 idea is this. Look, this is what we should do. And I would even go so far if I was Mike Johnson to say, look, I've got some people in my caucus that just don't want to rein in runaway spending. I'm not going to name names, but I do. And I, I don't have the votes to do what we should be doing. So this is the same advice I had for Kevin McCarthy back in the day that he didn't take, which is get together with your nucleus and and deliver this. Like, you have to send more actual uh, conservatives. Everybody runs around saying they're fiscal conservative. And the people who say that you that's a great tell to know that they're not. You have got to make sure that you send us more people who really want to shrink the size and scope and expense of government because we just don't have the personnel right now. At least that would right. be honest. I do it if I had the personnel. I don't have the personnel. You send me the personnel in November and I'll do it. Here's the problem with that. You are under some kind of grand illusion, Dan, that Republicans want to cut government spending. Well, I'm not. I'm not. Well, that's <laughs> what I'm just saying. Well, that's what I'm just saying. But I, I think Mike Johnson. I think, I think Mike Johnson and some some Republicans do. 
Yeah, some do, but they don't have nearly a majority of even um, even a majority within the Republican caucus where people want to cut spending. And by the way, I love Donald Trump. I'm working for him. Um, I'm yeah, he doesn't want to either. For the campaign. He doesn't want to cut spending either. I so, here, I mean, and, and look, my point is this, that we have a really crucial election coming up about the future of our country uh, in November. And I'm obviously a Trump guy. I don't agree with Trump on everything, but I think he will he will you know maintain lower taxes. He'll do the drilling. He'll get control of the border. He'll get control of crime. He will uh, get rid of these incredibly um, obtrusive uh, government uh, regulations. He'll do a lot to rebuild this economy. Is he going to massively cut spending? No, he's not. But my point is that the future of our country really depends on the on what happens in this election. And I don't want to get sidetracked. In a big debate about who shut down the government and blah, 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 I want to have a debate about these issues, about the border, about what we should do with our tax code, about what, yes, what we should do with our debt. What should we do with, uh, you know, the, uh, the situation with our energy policy? All these things are critically important to the country right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm worried that Republicans will just get blamed for another shutdown and then we get four more years of Kamala Harris or Joe Biden. Yeah, that would be disastrous. So have you spoken with President Trump after he was handed down, you know, being found liable for $360 million for allegedly defrauding banks and uh, insurers? Yeah. Um, I did get together with him uh, at Mar-a-Lago on, uh, at the Super Bowl uh, party that he had and chatted with him, but I have not talked to him since this absurd decision comes down. But I've got to tell you, I mean, I've been doing a lot of interviews and things on this, and people are just so outraged by this decision. It, it is so unfair it is. We have a two-tier justice system in America today, and it's it's frightening. Actually, uh, no one can possibly justify this decision. No one was defrauded. No one was defrauded. Nobody lost money here. In fact, the people who bought his properties made money. And here is Donald Trump. And again, love him or hate him, I know people listening to the show have very different opinions on him. But the guy helped build New York. I mean, you know, he was the one who built these incredible air- buildings in decrepit areas. He's the one who. When they couldn't, the government couldn't get the damn skating rink built, he stepped in and built it in six months. My point is, when you have people who are major developers who, and builders who come in and, and you know, make a city prosperous, as he and many, many others did, and then to basically say, you can't do business in, in our city anymore, and by the way, we're going to steal $300 million from you, and this is theft. This is the government stealing Donald Trump's money. And, you know, you, you saw what Kevin O'Leary said, yeah. the major investor. He said, I would never do business in New York anymore after this. Who would want to build something in New York when the government could steal your money? But during the appeal process, he, I mean, mostly it's Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump. They can still conduct business, right? I don't, I don't you know, I don't know the particulars of what they can and can't do. Uh, but I want to state this again, and I know it's an obvious point, but nobody lost money here. Now, did Donald Trump exaggerate the, uh, you know, the appraisal of some of these properties? Maybe he did. You know, the Wall Street Journal says, you know, he maybe stretched things. That's what, you know. That, everybody I'm does that. Defending I mean, that. when you but, sell your house yeah. and you know your house is worth 700 yeah. you're going to put it on the market for 750 Exactly. Because <laughs> you know, there might be some sucker out there who will take it. I mean, who knows? Exactly. And by the way, Amy, that's a great point you're making also. Let's say I want to sell my house to you. Yes. And I say, oh, you know, this is a $750,000 house. 
and you say, okay, I'm just going to take your word for it. I'm not going to do an appraisal of what the property is worth. I mean, who does that? So sad, too bad. So um, yesterday's uh, little Fox News town hall that Trump had in South Carolina with uh, Laura Ingram presiding, uh, you know, the question came up, as you might expect, a question that does not come up when Nikki Haley does a town hall, which is who do you think will be your running mate? Um, the, uh, you know, she ran through a list of the usual suspects, uh, at least that have been mentioned, you know, on the short list. And Trump sort of gave a general acknowledgement that they're all fine people. Do you have any um, perspective on his selection, uh, the importance of it, who you think would be the best fit for him, regardless of where he might be at the moment? Well, before I answer that question, uh, because we're doing a poll of conservative, major conservative voices, and I have two of them on the phone right now. So I would like to get your answer to that question, and then I'll answer it. So, uh, Amy, uh, ladies first, if you were Donald Trump, who would you take (laughs) as your VP nominee. Well, I had my heart set on Nikki Haley, but clearly that ship has sailed. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that ain't happening. But actually, if you think she's the right one, she can be your choice. I do. I mean, I think she would help with, you know, undecided suburban women voters. Okay. All right. I'm going to put you down with Nikki Haley. And there are many others who took that. Okay, Dan. Um, Javier Mille. Is he available? Um, So... (laughs) Dan Proch. I love it. Dan? I but wait a minute. He's not an American citizen. Is he? Yeah. No. That doesn't uh, matter anymore. Uh, yeah, right. He can come here legally or illegally. We'll let him vote. We'll smuggle him in. Who is someone, Dan? <laughs> who, by the way, this guy, for, so people know, he's the president of Argentina, and he took over, and they had a debt that was like double their GDP, and he balanced the budget in one month. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he takes plane. He doesn't take a, like, Air Force, their equivalent of Air Force One. He flies with the people when he goes. Yeah, yeah. And he's, cause he's all right, cutting, but Dan, I want a serious, agencies. I want a serious yeah. answer from you. Who, who's eligible that you would take if you were Trump? Tim Scott. Tim Scott. Okay. Now, my choice would be, I really like um, Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa. I think Thanks. she's awesome. Uh, I, I also like think taking someone, someone like uh, someone who's really steady and smart, and not necessarily has a lot of. Uh, you know, uh, pizzazz, but I really like the, um, uh, like I was saying, the secretary of state for, uh, uh, um, for Biden. I mean, for, uh, for Trump, um, Pompeo, Pompeo, because the guy's so super wicked smart. He's a total professional. And I just would relish the day to see Mike Pompeo debate Kamala Harris. But, <laughs> oh, that would, I mean, <laughs> anybody who debates her, please come on. Yeah. <laughs> like a turkey shoot, Stephen. Moore. So, you, oh, you, I, by the way, guys, I have to tell Pompeo, you, I gave really? a speech uh, on Saturday night in Barrington, Illinois, yeah. uh, to their Reagan dinner, and there were about 150 to 200 people there. They all listened to the Dan and Amy show. But I've got to tell you, Amy, you know, uh, I don't know. The Republicans have like Stockholm syndrome or something in, in Illinois. <laughs> there's just they feel like there's nothing they can do against this. They, I didn't even realize the Democrats in the legislature in Springfield, they have a veto-proof majority. Yeah. Yes, yes, a, a very comfortable supermajority. They have had for a long time because there is no opposition party. There's just a handful of sensible people milling about it uh, at Reagan and Lincoln Day dinners and places like Barrington, but that's it. 
There's no there's no yeah. signs of life here. My only point is, you know, that these were wonderful people and I had a great time. And, yes, but, exactly. You know, it's just they all are so like forlorn that there's nothing we can do. We're up against these <laughs> this wall of Democrats. And and when I grew up in Illinois, Illinois was a purple state. Now it is one of the bluest states in the country. We did vote yes. for Reagan though back in the eighties. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. That was yeah, a good year. Yeah, it's been a, a minute. Yeah. It's been a minute. Um, yeah, well, a lot of uh, self-inflicted wounds there. We'll have to uh, do a, a, a battle plan for the resurgence of a Republican Party in Illinois some other time because that's a yeah, Do you think, Dan, that, do you think Dan, that Trump could win Illinois? Uh, <laughs> no. Not, not, <laughs> not there. Yeah. Not a chance in no, H-E-double-L I mean, hockey. He, he'd have a, well, he'd have a better, yeah, I, I'm not even going to get into it. All right, Steve Moore, <laughs> economist, and, uh, of course, Govzilla author, Unleash, Comedian Unleash Prosperity as well. Sign up for his uh, Unleash Prosperity hotline newsletter if you haven't already. Steve, thanks as always. Appreciate it. All right, you guys, you guys are very popular in Barrington. Thank you. Appreciate it. We appreciate <laughs> you. Care. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM560. The answer. This is Chicago's morning answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Have you ever heard the theory about white flight? Yes. From the city to the sub. Yeah, but the theory right. about why it happened. The city to the suburbs, the suburbs to other suburbs. I don't know. In Detroit, they said it happened after the 68 riots, that the white flight and all the TV stations left Detroit, and they're all in the burbs. Yeah, but the theory about it, not the description of what happened. The theory, one theory is sort of nicely encapsulated rhythmically as magic dirt became tragic dirt. Uh, so the magic dirt of the suburbs where people were fleeing the uh, problems of the urban centers for the leafy suburbs to pursue their own American dreams, better schools, safer neighborhoods and the like. And when uh, minority families did the same thing, after white families had fled to the suburbs, the theory goes, they were left holding the bag, the minority families, the black and Latino families, when they fled to the suburbs. And so uh, when we talk about what happened to South Suburban Chicagoland, for example, the argument would be, well, uh, ethnic whites left the city for the South Suburbs and then uh, Latino and black families, particularly in the Southland situation, black families started to move to the South suburbs. And that and that moved and that uh, led those white ethnic families to then move to collar counties like Will or Northwest Indiana. And what they left behind was the, the magic dirt that they found became tragic dirt because they left behind aging infrastructure and. And it's um, and uh, uh, not the wherewithal that uh, they had uh, come to find and build upon when they first made the move. That explains the migratory pattern, and it also explains why 
once thriving South suburban communities, think Flossmoor and Olympia Fields, no longer such thriving communities. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I, I got to get more context to this um, because I'm highly skeptical. Uh, but uh, let's have that conversation. To help us do that, please be joined by Benjamin Harold. He's an award-winning journalist and author of the book D- Disillusioned, Disillusioned, Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. Benjamin Harold, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So um, do I have uh, that magic dirt, tragic dirt theory properly described? Yeah, I think you actually did a really great great job of that. I appreciated okay. hearing it in, in your words. And I think the, the one place where I, I, I uh, you know, reframe it just a little bit is the idea that it's the, it's the dirt, it's the land itself. Because I think really what we see in a lot of these communities is it's the infrastructure. And those that infrastructure is built with lots of government subsidy, but that same subsidy isn't available to maintain and repair it moving on. And that's where you kind of get this the switch from magic to tragic. So, so what, so... Um, I mean, I, develop that more for me, for us, how it works, you know, in your in your uh, estimation. I mean, and I don't know what your familiarity is with, with, with Chicagoland, so there's another regional example. But just to make it sort of concrete, pun intended, um, how it happens that you have big city migration sort of by in sort of racial groups, one after the other. And there's investment in infrastructure and then, well, the whites move on and then there's disinvestment in infrastructure and and uh, a real real world uh, uh, vignette that uh, highlights that. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a uh, inner ring suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, and I write about this in the book. It's a town called Penn Hills and it's kind of your you know, prototypical post-World War II bedroom community. It had been farmlands and coal mines, and then all of a sudden, more or less overnight, it became subdivisions full of single-family homes. And when my family moved in in the mid-'70s, it was still almost 90% white, and it was still a place that worked really, really well for families like mine. So it worked well in terms of, you know, you can still get cheap mortgage loans. There's big tax breaks for suburban homeowners. But also, most of the infrastructure was still new, and the public schools worked really well. Um, and they worked really well because they had been built in our own image. They reflected the values, interest, history, culture of families like mine. And so to give you an example of how this kind of deterioration over time happens and how that ends up having a racial dimension to it is as early as the 1950s, like as the town, uh, the suburban town outside of Pittsburgh is still developing, people start warning, hey, you have a big problem with the sewer system here. It's kind of a slapdash system. There's, uh, you know, there's a whole neighborhoods that are missing treatment plants. There's uh, raw sewage that's leaking into the ground and going to the river. And you have both planning experts and uh, resident citizens saying you have a real problem here. This is a health risk and this is a legal risk. And the town ignored it because it would have been really, really expensive to fix. And it ignored it for decades. And so my family, like when I lived in Penn Hills, this was all happening then. But we didn't pay to repair the system because we were kicking the can down the road. Uh, and eventually the bill for that comes due. And in my hometown of Penn Hills, what that looked like is the EPA and state environmental regulators getting involved and saying, you know, there's 13,000 violations of the Clean Water Act here and finding the township uh, uh, almost a million dollars and demanding $60 million in repairs. And uh, so it was the residents who lived there after my family left who ended up having to pay for that. So that's this idea of how it kind of 
the, you know, the, the kind of dream deteriorates in real time with this demographic shift laid over. Because when I graduated Penn Hills in 1994, it was the public schools were 72% white. By the time, you know, all of this really hit and the, the, um, the damage was done, the public schools were almost two-thirds black. Yeah, but okay, but but kicking the can down the road is it's not racial. That's a, almost everybody does that. Um, white, yeah, black. I mean, I mean, every level of government kicking the can down the road. I mean, that 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 should be the motto of government in America. So so yeah, I mean, right? So so so, so like for but you're you're exactly right. Like that's the whole point. Like that's the whole point. And it's not, you know, the argument that I make in the book is it's not a critique of individual decisions. And again, my own family is involved in this. So we, you uh-huh. know, we did this and it was a rational decision for me and my family. The problem is, is when you aggregate those rational individual decisions up to a sociological level, you get this pattern that leaves a lot of families stuck. So is that why you decided to move? Because that uh, payday was coming? You know, what you see in a lot of these kind of aging suburbs where this, you know, you see the changes start to happen. And this is true in Penn Hills. And, you know, I followed five other suburban or four other suburban communities around the country. And you see it again and again is that there's almost like this kind of like ambient anxiety that starts to permeate a town. You start to see roads aren't getting fixed. Uh, test scores in the school system start to go down. Home values start to stagnate. Uh, you know, the um, sidewalks and sewers aren't getting fixed repairs. So you start to see all of these or feel all these changes. But we don't connect the dots. We don't have a larger way of making sense of it. All we know is like, hey, this isn't what I thought it was. I should get out while I still can. And again, that's a rational, normal decision for right. families who are living it in your own bubble. But the problem is, is when that's all happening, when it's kind of happening at a wholesale level with whole, you know, tens of thousands of people moving out, being replaced by tens of thousands of people moving in. And those people moving in are expecting that same generous social contract with new infrastructure, lots of, you know, uh, financial benefits, et cetera. But what they end up finding is not only are they not getting that same deal, but they're end up paying for the stuff that helped everyone who came before them get such a you get so many opportunities. Yeah, but I mean, but I mean, realistically, it is a very small percentage of the residents of any community, regardless of race, that has any idea other than physical manifestations of it, like potholes, what the underlying infrastructure, you know, the the water and sewer infrastructure and major projects. And are we going to have to, uh, you know, level up a bond issue? I mean, the percentage of people who have that level of sophistication or even interest in understanding municipal government a regional government, I mean, is infinitesimal. That's why I just like the racial component. I mean, for example, let me just let me just counter your your Penn Hill example with with Chicagoland. So the South Suburbs of Chicagoland, which we talk about a lot, you heard me mentioning it at the outset. I mean, it was the two suburb two suburban communities, Flossmore and Olympia Fields. Um, 40, 50 years ago now, the late sixties, they were two of the wealthiest communities in Chicagoland, along with North Shore communities that are more familiar to people outside Chicago, that still are some of the wealthiest. Flossmore and Olympia Fields no longer on the list because not so much because of white flight or because of uh, black families moving in from the suburbs, because that, you know, that happens over time. It doesn't, you know, you know, flip a switch, but because of terrible public policy decisions like the property tax classification system in Cook County that destroyed the commercial tax base in South Suburban Cook County and then came after the residential because there was no commercial base. And so you're paying the highest property taxes as a percentage of home value, uh, some of the highest in America, black, white, Latino, whatever. It's just you can't make the math make sense. And then you add on what they did in Chicago, these same policymakers, 
um, black, white, and Latino, when they tore down the public housing projects and they wanted to scatter site the residents around the suburbs and a disproportionate percentage of former public housing residents were sent to South suburban communities. And you, if you go back and look at stories from the Chicago Tribune and uh, and other outlets in the late 60s and early 70s, you'll have black residents. You have in these stories, black residents of Rosalind a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago, which was a middle income, uh, predominantly black uh, community that was safe and prosperous. And and they're saying, wait, was it? We don't send those people to our community because they don't have the socialization to be property owners and to take care and to contribute. You can't just dump these people into our community. It's not going to be productive for our community. This was black residents, middle income residents, families talking about black, largely black residents being shipped from the city to the suburbs. So I'm just using those as two examples to say those public policy decisions, I would argue, had so much more impact on the decimation of South Suburban Chicago land than sort of the 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 the, the, the racial uh, the, the racial problems we had, of course, the discrimination issues. I, I acknowledge all that. But those public policy issues is what put families moving into the south suburbs after the initial flight from Chicago much more behind the eight ball than anything that uh, this magic uh, soil, tragic soil could explain. Yeah, I think you're, you're making a really great point there about the public policy dimension of this. And I couldn't agree with you more on that, that, uh, you know, there is this really um, what I see as as both short sighted and you know kind of counterproductive policy that really drove a lot of post war suburban growth. And so what you see, you know, the the example that that you're you're saying really resonates with me because I think what you see is is kind of two things. Like we we have kind of developed this mindset that um, if a na- our neighborhood starts to change, if the demographics change, if things start to age and uh, you know you, it needs repair, uh, um, if the, the, the basic kind of underlying foundation, we realize the foundational kind of principles of the, of the community aren't really working anymore, are, you know, what we've been encouraged to do is leave and, and leave for you know, a newer suburb further out or increasingly going back into the city if you're able to. And so you have that kind of policy decision, which is not explicitly racial or explicitly racist. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a reflection of this mindset. But what ends up happening, and I, I think you make a great point that there's a there's a strong class dimension to that too. So, you know, I followed an African American family in the Atlanta suburbs for the book, for example, and they made the same progression. They said, "Listen, we're going to go out to the newest, furthest place from downtown we can because that's where we think the schools are best." Um, and we, you know, they looked at the same thing everyone else looked at: what are the test scores, what are the crime rates, what are the you know neighborhood safety scores, all of those kinds of things. So, it's it, it's a very American thing, but that's part of the problem is that you know we have created all of these communities. Based Based on that mindset grounded in this flawed public policy. And now we're kind of having to deal with the fact that not only did it not work, but it hasn't worked on a massive scale. But then how do you explain um, what you just mentioned? You just made reference to gentrification of the cities. So then people uh, come back to the cities, uh, whether they're empty nesters or, or kids out of college or, or what have you. Um, they or they want to just live in a bigger city for the arts and entertainment diversity. And and you see all this gentrification going on until uh, the uh, so many of these cities essentially lost control of 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 public safety. And then the flight now has uh, and it, it, the coming and lockdowns during covid, of course. And so now the flight is moving out of those cities and the gentrification has stalled. But but there was that gentrification. So they came back to what would be, according to your paradigm, tragic soil and made it magic soil. And then they left again. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, you, you had kind of uh, opened the segment by talking about the kind of cycles and patterns of white flight. And staying away from even what are the intentions of it, just the, you know, kind of from a sociological perspective, the dynamics of it. I think what we've really seen, particularly in the last, you know, 10, 20 years, it's almost like when you have the wave in the bathtub that kind of comes down and hits the end of the tub and then kind of sweeps back. And so you do see a lot of families, and have, we have seen a lot of, you know, younger families, more affluent families, especially highly educated families, moving back into cities. And so, but part of what, you know, when we step back and see it from, you know, the 30,000 foot view, the kind of common thread in all of these dynamics is people trying to run away from the problems we've left behind or from the, and or from the people we don't want to share communities with and schools with and neighborhoods with. And so, the, you know, that migration pattern has gone off lots of different directions, but the underlying principle, I think, largely remains the same. He is Benjamin Harold. He's an award-winning journalist and author. The book, Disillusioned, Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. Benjamin Harold, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Well, it uh, worked uh, 35 years ago. Why not try it again? Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox, uh, he uh, ventured down to uh, Springfield to uh, meet with the state's illustrious legislative leaders because he wants a billion dollars of public funds to uh, develop a 60-acre complex uh, in uh, West Loop uh, that would consist of a new Comiskey Park, yeah, open park spaces, apartment buildings between Roosevelt and 18th Street. Yeah, bro, you know, you could take a water taxi there. There'd be a new restaurant and bar scene, all that. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I wonder uh, how we did, we being the taxpayers, we did with the $150 million in subsidies that uh, Jerry Reinsdorf got back in the late 80s when Governor Jim Thompson cut the deal with Harold Washington after Reinsdorf had extorted them with the threat to move to Florida. Yeah. Don't we still own $50 million on that? Uh, that yeah, I don't know offhand what the number is, but um, yeah, it's, generally speaking, uh, I think our next guest will confirm, but we can get into the details. These uh, deals where uh, for uh, uh, one hamburger today, I will gladly pay you with two hamburgers tomorrow doesn't really actually transpire that way with uh, with respect to taxpayers' interests. They they get left holding the bag, but I know you got to keep up with the Joneses of other big cities that are financing new stadiums and yeah. ever bigger scoreboards and amenities and uh, surrounding hotels and restaurants and entertainment, you know, because there's no price that's too high for the bread and the circuses. Mm -hmm. For more on this, please be joined by Alan Sanderson, Senior Instructional Professor in Economics at University of Chicago. He is an authority on sports economic issues such as these. Professor Sanderson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, glad to do it. So um, how, how did we do on uh, Comiskey Park 2.0 back in the late 80s to present? Well, if you 
go even back a little further than that when we basically moved the ballpark from the north side of 35th Street to the south side. Uh, I think most everyone would argue that it was not a good investment, uh, either for private developers or or public funds. In general, uh, sports facilities uh, tend not to be good investments. And 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 I mean, why is that? It's just sort of the um, classic government is not the best allocator of scarce resources. Well, yeah, and then I, I guess I tend to put them on a spectrum. With, I would put football on one end of that spectrum and probably uh, something like the United Center on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, for instance, with, with football, you can't make it pay because it's used so little of the time. You play, you know, 10 home games a year or something like that. Um uh, baseball is kind of in the middle of that, and then if, if you move to a facility like the United Center that that hosts both an NBA and NHL team, you you can make that pay. Uh, Madison Square Garden, for example, in New York, it probably operates 225, 250 nights a year. Um, that's that's not hard to to, to make it pay, but uh, baseball again is kind of in the middle. Uh, more and more. Uh, probably again led by football uh, is is driven by television. Uh, uh, probably seventy five or eighty percent of the Bears' revenue, and the same for all of the uh, NFL teams. Uh, seventy five or eighty percent of the revenue is television. Well, and the Bears are competing too for taxpayer funded, you know, help. So yes. if they gave it to Reinsdorf, wouldn't they have to give it to the Bears to the McCanskies? <laughs> <laughs> Like who's going to beg or, harder? Or or the the fire or whoever's next in line to to get the subsidy? Yeah, how did how did uh, Bridgeview do with the Chicago Fire Stadium? Uh, I don't know. I have to yeah. ignorant on, on that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's whether it's, or not. It, yeah, it's whether or not Americans will ever watch soccer. Well, okay, no, uh, or should no, they shouldn't? Uh, but the the um, so so the other thing that's sort of um, interesting too is. Um, we have this Illinois Sports Facilities Authority that's that was created around the time of uh, Jerry Reinsdorf's last shakedown um, for the purpose of selling bonds to finance these stadiums backed by the taxpayers, of course. Um, yeah. So 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 uh, explain explain that process and and why do it that way rather than, um, you know, directly underwriting these stadiums if the government was so inclined. Um, again, good question. And, and I don't really know. Know, know the answer to that. I, I am struck uh, with this recent proposal, not not the most recent, say, of I want a billion dollars, but uh, a lot of the other things have been going on in recent months. Because the White Sox, and, and again, I'm, I'm a University of Chicago faculty member, uh, and I live in Hyde Park, and uh, you know, probably by location more than anything else. Uh, I'm I'm part of a White Sox season ticket group, so I'm not anti-sports or anti-White Sox. Uh, but 2023 had to be on the field and off one of the worst seasons I've ever seen for a professional franchise. It was downright embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, if somebody had offered me free tickets to the game, I would say, no thanks, the price is too high. Uh, right. I, I just, 
Well, yeah. well, well, so, right. No, I mean, I'm a, I'm a diehard Sox fan too, so I, I feel your pain. Um, so, and, and well, I agree you with lo- you. When you lose a, when you lose a hundred games a year, that's not a good starting place to say. Oh, by the way, I like a billion dollars. No, and it's not a great fan. I mean, it's you know the stadium's gotten a lot better since uh, they sort of re did it after they did it. Uh, but it's just not a great fan experience in the neighborhood. And so one of the arguments would be, and this is sort of, I think, the same thinking for the Bears, thinking of Arlington Heights. Well, if we could do something like a Wrigleyville, if we could do something like they did in California with SoFi Stadium and have a sort of community, entertainment community built around it, then we can make it make sense. And to my point, which would be say, well, if you can do that, great. And if you can make it make sense, then do it yourself and leave taxpayers alone. Yeah, no, exactly. I I agree with you. I mean, even with Arlington Heights, I mean, one of the things that happens there is what we discovered was uh, people like to bet on horse races. They just don't want to watch them. <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 the word certainly, and if I think about the NFL playoffs and, and going forward into next year, uh, college ball as, as well, is I mean the the magic word is streaming. Uh, that it's just going to be more and more being put on that platform or platforms. Well, unless maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe if we could get um, Taylor Swift to dump Travis Kelsey and... um, Date who? um, uh, yeah, who's I don't eligible know. on? Oh, maybe uh, Matt. I, I don't. I don't really know who's. I don't know who, who's married and who's not on the oh, socks. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But I mean, you know, something. We need something like that to happen. We need a, a a romance that captures our hearts the way that Travis and Taylor have. Maybe that could be built into the price somehow. No. So I mean, so if you're a legislator and uh, Jerry Reinsdorf comes knocking and um, the McCaskies. Uh, probably they don't come to the state. They they really just want property tax relief at the uh, at the local level. But um, but any 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 uh, owner of any uh, professional sports franchise comes knocking and they threaten you and say, well, you know, we're going to take the socks and we're going to go to St. Petersburg or something like I threatened 35 years ago. If you don't do it, what do you say? You don't want to lose the socks, just like Chicago doesn't want to lose the Bears. Well, I think you can bet on uh, the fact that the Ryan stores have. have have been shopping the the socks around. They may deny it, or they may be more serious in one area than another. But if they got a better deal out of out of the state, they'd be gone before the opening day. Alan Sanderson, senior instructional professor in economics at University of Chicago, an authority on sports economics issues. As we were discussing, Professor Sanderson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, glad to have a good day. Thanks. You too, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Well, speaking of uh, Riley Gaines and the event uh, coming up next month, got another instance. This is sort of like telling uh, violent crime stories, stories about people who should have been held uh, in pretrial detention and instead were released and the crimes they committed, sort of the same thing. All we can do is tell the stories and hope that more parents and coaches and school administrators exhibit more courage. High school basketball team in Massachusetts, 
forfeited a recent game after three players were injured, including one who was hurt during a play involving a six-foot male player on the other team who identifies as female. It's easy to pick him out, not just because he's uh, at least half a foot taller than everybody else on the court, but also because he has facial hair. He's a girl, though. Okay. He's huge. And he did, there was a rebound. He grabbed a rebound. He was fighting with a female player. And he threw her to the ground. And so she was the third player that's on the video, and we'll tweet it out. Um, and she had a hip injury. And then the coach at halftime was like, we're done because my bench is getting cleared and we have playoffs next week. We're forfeiting. The, colli- the Collegiate Charter School of Lowell in Massachusetts forfeited the game against Kip Academy. So these are like charter schools, too, right. as we were talking about with Rick Hess yesterday. Um, charter school doesn't mean they're immune from this in- insanity. And it's very interesting, too, that the uh, Kip School um, declined to say whether the uh, school believes the male player who identifies as female was the region the other team forfeited, also declines to assign gender identity to this guy pretending to be a girl. I mean, the whole thing is, it is just beyond absurd. And the cowardice is beyond comprehension. Should have never played the game in the first place. Where are the parents in all this? You know, you do have a say about your child's education and about your child's extracurricular activities. They should have stood up and said, no, my daughter, I'm not putting my daughter in a dangerous situation like that. There are some people trying to uh, blow the whistle and set an example. One is William Bach. Bach is the former general counsel for the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. And he writes as to why he resigned his role as an NCAA board member, essentially. Remember, the NCAA is now headed up by Charlie Baker, the former <clears throat> Republican-ish governor of Massachusetts. Well, uh, he's a – what's the new term I created? Miko. Uh, he's a, men in, a man in chromosome only, too. Um, writes uh, Bach, again, former general counsel at U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. But uh, phased in between 2022 and 2025, the NCAA's policy centers on testosterone levels, allowing males to compete as females simply by reducing their testosterone below below a certain benchmark. The framework is founded on the false premise that a woman is merely a testosterone level. This policy harms women, denies biological reality, ignores that testosterone suppression doesn't offset the enormous performance advantage of being male, and provides cover for an NCA member institutions to violate federal laws protecting women. He says, you know, my goal for 14 years as general counsel for the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency was to preserve competitive fairness and leveling the, play field, leveling the playing field for athletes. He was the lead lawyer in the case against Lance Armstrong, for example. Oh. Uh, he writes of the NCA's trans policy. It promotes sanctioned cheating, his words. It gives colleges the green light to steal records and win championships with trans-identifying males and women's teams. It deprives women of competitive opportunities and subjects them to physical, mental, and emotional harm. Yeah. And uh, it will continue until more people like William Bach and more parents at the grade school and high school level stand up, as Riley Gaines has called on parents to do. Remember when that would be considered assault, when a man would beat up a woman? Uh, Times have changed. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. 
Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.